we start a new series today, and the series is titled Good Fruit, Bad Fruit. And even though it may not be so obvious today where that title came from, I think in the next couple of weeks as we work through the Scripture, you will, you will see clearly what, what we're talking about. We are um, in chapter 12 of Matthew. As you know, we work through... We worked through a book of the Bible, and um, we've been working on Matthew for 19 months now. So um, we may take it a little slowly, but uh, uh, we try to share with you what the Holy Spirit wants us to share. And today's scripture is one of those that uh, we probably would like to skip um, a portion of it. But when you preach through a book expositorily, you're demanded to take a look at each one of the scriptures. Um, they're there for a reason. Some of them are hard to understand. Some of them are hard to hear. But by the same token, they're there for us. And we, we need to wrestle with them. And in the wrestling, increase our faith. So if you will, turn with me to Matthew 12. We're going to look at 22 through 32. There are, yes, there are Bibles on either side here. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to grab one of these. If you, if you don't have a Bible in an in a easy-to-understand language, you're welcome to take one of those with you. Um, I'd love for you to follow along in, in your own Bible. And the Scriptures will be, as you see, on the screen, if neither of the other two options work for you. In this church, we believe that the Bible is the infallible Word of God. It's the only rule that we have for faith and for life. So listen to God's Word, beginning at verse 22, Matthew 12. Then they brought him, and and the him here is Jesus. We just completed a section on this. Then they brought him, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. 
Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Well, such a cheery piece of Scripture to start a Sunday morning off with, isn't it? I don't know which king or despot or president or whatever it was started this idea of the big lie, but I know it's been around for a long, long, long time. My definition of a big lie is, the big lie, is if you repeat a lie loudly enough and you repeat it long enough, people will begin to believe it even though it's a lie and there's not a speck of truth in it. All you have to do is say it over and 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 over again, and pretty soon it's true. Nero used it when he was fingering the Christians in Rome about the fire that destroyed the city. Adolf Hitler used the big lie to blame the uh, economic situation in post-World War I Germany on the Jews. And politicians, imagine that, politicians use it even today, blaming other people for everything that goes wrong, taking no responsibility themselves. You see, I think it's, a, it's human nature. We take the focus off of us and put it onto someone else, blaming them for, for the shortcomings that are before us, and in essence saying, well, I didn't have anything to do with that. It, it, was, those, it was those Christians that, that lit the fires in Rome. It wasn't, wasn't me. I was fiddling, you know. I was practicing my violin. The Pharisees are using this big lie here in Matthew chapter 12. Here we have an account of Jesus who has healed yet another demon-possessed man. And this demon-possessed man had been blind and mute. And the Pharisees denounce Jesus by saying that his power comes from the devil. Imagine that. Verse 24 says this, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Now, this wasn't the first time that we've heard this. Those of you that have been with us for a while, back in Matthew chapter 9, almost the identical thing happened. Jesus healed uh, two blind men. He healed one mute. And then in verse 33 of chapter 9, it says, the crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. And our friends, the Pharisees, didn't particularly like a statement like that. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. There's their same language. They're the big lie. They're putting it off on the prince of demons. So in Matthew 12, they're bringing this same thing up again. 
Let's try it again, see if it'll work this time. And there's two circumstances in particular that caused them to bring it up. First of all, Jesus had performed, as I said, yet another exorcism. It's becoming a common thing now. And the common people had begun to speculate that Jesus might actually be the son of David. In the Old Testament, the Scriptures refer to the son of David as the Messiah, the king over Israel, the one who will rule that country, rule and reign that country. And the people are beginning to ask, hmm, could this be the son of David? Matthew 12, 23 is, is in our um, portion of Scripture here is the statement that they make. All the people were astonished and said, could this, in fact, be the son of David? And the Pharisees were also beginning to fear that, that they were losing control of the people. This man whom, whom Jesus healed, he had been in truly dreadful condition as I guess all of us who wrestle with sin are in truly dreadful condition. And the demon had possessed him, and as a result, the man could neither talk nor see. I find that amazing. Matthew has already given us this story in chapter 9, and we talked about this earlier, but it helps us to think that Physical ailments sometimes have spiritual roots. The man could not talk, so he couldn't call out to Jesus to save him. He couldn't see, so he couldn't find his way to Jesus. He depended on some friends to bring him. And that's what they did. They brought this helpless sinner to Jesus, and he healed him immediately so that he could tell other people about his encounter with the Savior and so that he could see the way to bring his friends to Jesus as well. Now, this story's not here, I don't believe, to, mm, to teach us about demon possession or even about what it means. I don't think that's the reason that Matthew put it here. I think it's about this Pharisee's big lie, the big lie that they wanted to tell, that they wanted people to believe. And it's about how Jesus responded to that big lie. And Jesus' response, well, it wasn't any different than his response had been all the way along. He did exactly what he had been doing. And for the sake of some of you that have not been with us, what had he been doing? Well, his purpose in coming was to proclaim and to demonstrate. His purpose was to teach and to preach and to heal. So in this story, we first see the healing taking place. Then he teaches the Pharisees, and then he preaches to them. I think if we look at this teaching that takes place in uh, verses 25 through 29, I can get four real easy 
um, logical points from his teaching, and they are these, and I think I wrote them on your, on your handout there. Uh, number one is this. He's saying, I cannot be exercising demons by demonic power because then Satan would be fighting against himself. And if he should do that, his kingdom would not stand. Well, that's crazy. Well, you know Satan's not going to be fighting against himself. Think about how ridiculous. I mean, really, how ridiculous that statement by the Pharisees is. Satan's much too shrewd, much too shrewd to liberate those that he has already enslaved. He's not going to do that. The second point would be this. If I'm not driving out demons by the power of Satan, follow the logic here as as he goes through this. If I'm not driving out demons by the power of Satan, then I must be doing it by the power of God. And our big idea today comes out of that statement. The big idea is this. In spiritual matters, it takes the supreme power of God to overcome the great but not omnipotent power of the devil. Got that? It takes the supreme power of God to overcome the great but not omnipotent power of the devil. I'd like to do a little word association game with you. And I think in first service they were pretty much asleep. So um, I'm going to say a word, and I want you to give me the, the opposite of that word, the first word that comes to your mind that's the opposite of that, and say it loud enough so maybe I could hear you <laughs> this time. The first word is this, black. Ah, very good. That's already much better than they were. Cold. Winter. Dirty. Sweet. God. Ah, that's the big lie. That is the big lie. Don't allow yourself to fall into that trap. God has no equal opposite. God has no equal opposite. If you don't remember a thing that I say today, when you leave here, you remember that. No one is equal to God in any way. God is all-present, all-powerful, all-knowing. Satan is only as powerful as God allows him to be. Satan was created by God. Satan can't be in all places at one time. God, through his Holy Spirit, can be. Satan can't know what you're thinking before you say it. We, we sometimes get that one wrong. God knows every thought that is in your head before, before you even know the thought. There is no equal to God. Okay? Now we can move on. Okay. Point number three is this. If I am driving out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. The tense of the verb here, has come, is 
essential for us to understand this passage, I think, and for us to really build our theology. Has come is not future tense. As if Jesus was pointing to something out there that that might happen someday, that might become true. Has come is present tense, pointing to a present reality, something that's happening right now. In this church, we talk about the kingdom of God a lot. And we, even last week, Walt uh, shared with you about the kingdom is already, it's already come, but it's not yet come. What in the heck does that mean? The kingdom was ushered in when Jesus came, but it is not complete in its entirety until he comes again. Then it's complete. People say, well, we pray for folks and, and they don't get healed. In the perfect kingdom of God, everybody's healed. There is no sickness. There is no pain. There are no tears. There's nothing to worry about. In this in-between time, those things are still with us. So when we pray for healing for somebody, sometimes they're healed. We've seen miraculous healings in this church already. We had some guys, uh, some folks in the uh, first service that had experienced healing here. But we've also prayed for a lot of people that have not been healed. Well, why did that happen? What, God doesn't like us? That, uh, all these excuses? No. It just says to me, God has allowed us to see a glimpse of how wonderful the kingdom will be when it's complete. We get to see a snapshot of that once in a while when he chooses to heal someone. But he doesn't choose to heal everyone in this in-between time. The kingdom of God has come, and the reason it has come is that Jesus has come. So the fourth point in his teaching is this. If the kingdom of God has come because I have come, then I must be the king of that kingdom, the Messiah. That was his logic. The four steps that he was teaching, once again, to our friends, the Pharisees. And Jesus is saying, you know those people in verse 23, I think it was? Their assessment of me is correct. When they said, could this, this Jesus, could this be the son of David? He's saying, yeah, they got it right. You got it wrong. They got it right. Before we move on, um, there's one other point, and, and as I bring this to you, it's one, it's one of these things in parenthetical um, or parentheses that, that we can throw into this. It's kind of like Lieutenant Columbo on TV, the guy in the trench coat, the, the detective that would go interview people and ask 3,000 questions, and he, he would say, thank you, thank you, ma'am, I appreciate that, and he'd walk out the door and he'd say, just one more question. I have just one more thing. Well, this is the one more thing that Jesus has in this section of Scripture. 
It's the inconsistency of the, of the Pharisees' opinion, or position, I should say. Verse 27, Jesus is saying, And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? Hmm. Did we just kind of slip over that when we read? By whom do your people drive them out? So Jesus is acknowledging that the Pharisees' people, their disciples, are able to drive out demons. I don't know whether you had ever thought about that before or not. They had disciples who claimed to be able to drive out demons. And if that was true, then the Pharisees were, were certainly not going to say that their people were driving out demons by demonic power. It was by the power of God they were driving these demons out. After all, how could they claim that, that, that Jesus did his work by Satan's power and their people did their work by the power of God? It just didn't make sense. Well, Josephus, who was a um, historian at this time, and, and you can, if you're up late one night, can't sleep, Pull out your two Josephus books. One is called Antiquities and the other is called the uh, Jewish Wars. And in both of those books, he has multiple of accounts of the, the disciples of the Pharisees driving out demons from the people of Israel. So it was evidently a well-known fact. We don't think about it much. We think about Jesus driving out demons and that's pretty much it. But evidently... Um, some of the Pharisees' folks were able to do that as well. That was a free part of this message. You can take it for what it's worth. Uh, and now Jesus begins to preach to these Pharisees. This is where he put legs onto the teaching. See, teaching is instruction, and it has to do with content and context. Uh, preaching contains instruction, but it goes far beyond that. It's, it's, it's a passionate declaration of what the hearers need to do in order to apply what the teacher has taught. And preaching calls for a response. So Jesus is looking for a response from these pharisaical people that are hearing him. And Jesus is showing how important it is for them to properly assess who he is and what he's doing and how fatal it is if they judge it wrongly. We're talking serious stuff here. Serious stuff. So here's his preaching. It's only two points. You had to be simple for the Pharisees, I think. It's only two points, and it's, I think it's as much for us today as it was for the Pharisees then. The first one was this, verse 30, you cannot be neutral about Jesus. You can't be neutral. Jesus says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Neutrality is impossible. Absolutely impossible. You, you may be here today and you, you may think, Well, I, you know, I, I don't really care about this Jesus. I could, I could, I could take him or leave him. But Jesus says, no, if you're not for me, you are actually opposing me. 
We did a series here uh, starting last Easter about a fence and people sitting on the fence in Scripture and what side of the fence they ended up on after, after, they, just, after they fell off of the fence. Which side did they fall on? Jesus is saying you can't be on the fence. There's not a neutral position. If you're on the fence, you're opposing me. You've got to be in my court or you're totally against me. We think, well, I, I'll make a decision about Jesus you know, later. I've got time. Let me, let me get through college. You know, There's too many things happening in college. I'm going to have too much fun. I'll do that later. We've made a decision when we say that. And the decision is, I'm opposing you. Jesus always demands a decision. He requires deliberate submission to his rule. He calls on us to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses, and to follow him daily. And his second point is this. Your refusal to believe is dangerous. It's dangerous. Look at verse 31 and 32. And so I tell you, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. I don't know how many times Walt and Karen and I have stood up here and told you guys over and over and over again, you can't do anything that God won't forgive. I don't care what it is in your past, He can forgive you. And then Jesus says this, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man... Son of man was the way that Jesus preferred to um, reference himself. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. He doesn't just stop there. Either in this age or in the age to come, one sin leads to another sin. In Alpha, we speak of sin as being addictive. Each one bills on the one before. Think of a, a, a bank teller that starts embezzling at the bank. And, and you know, maybe, maybe the first time he embezzles, he, he takes enough money for a coffee break. And that's a bunch of money if you're going to Starbucks. The second time he steals, it's enough for lunch. The third th- time he steals, it's enough for lunch for the week. The fourth time he steals and he still hadn't gotten called, it may be enough for his house payment. And pretty soon he's into it for $100,000 and he doesn't know how he got there. It's addictive. It keeps building. Rejection sometimes leads even to an unforgivable rejection. People have come to me and and, uh, Walt and other pastors worried to death, worried sick that they might have committed this unforgivable sin when they haven't done any sort of thing like that. In fact, the very fear that they might have committed the unforgivable sin is the best proof that they haven't done it. If you're worried about it, you haven't done it. Let me tell you why. Well, in a little bit, I'll tell you why. 
The Pharisees in this passage have called the good work of God demonic. This is considered a sin against the Holy Spirit because the deliverance that took place was through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit did the delivering. They were identifying the Holy Spirit with Satan. Why is that unforgivable? It's considered unforgivable because it's a case of distorting reality so radically, so thoroughly, that repentance becomes impossible. And without repentance, there is no forgiveness. Repentance precedes forgiveness. That's why we pray, I'm sorry for the things I did. Thank you for sending Jesus. Please send your Holy Spirit to help me. So this one sin, this blasphemy sin, is really two sins in one. The first one is the rejection of the truth of the gospel. We reject the gospel. But then it goes to the next step. It's, it's, it's a rejection of the same truth in the full awareness that that's exactly what you're doing. You're not accidentally rejecting the gospel. You hear the gospel and you're saying, by gosh, I'm not going to believe that. I don't have anything to do with that. It's thoughtful. It's willful. It's deliberate. It's rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus calls it unforgivable. If, if people in our society really consider evil things to be good and good things to be evil, and they are uh, unabashedly committed to that, then what possible chance of genuine repentance do they have? It's as if they're living in a parallel universe. And they reject everything that's a part of our universe. Simply, we, we can call some of this stuff politically correct. You know, think about the things that are politically correct that we know sitting here today are wrong. They're sins. And we call them politically correct in our society today. Where, where are we going? What are we thinking? It's the big lie. Millions prefer the big lie instead of what we speak, which is the gospel. The gospel is the big truth. It's God's truth. They prefer the big lie knowing full well that the Holy Spirit, the, the spirit of truth, will use the gospel, which is the big truth, to replace the big lie. And in doing so, will bring many people to Jesus. And Jesus is the only one, the only one, who can heal them and who can make them whole. Restoring their sight. Restoring their sight so they, they might clearly see their way to the Savior. Restoring their speech so that they might tell others exactly what it is that Jesus has done for them. Some of you here today may find yourselves 
blind and mute in these terms. Maybe you can't quite find your way to Jesus. I know he's over there somewhere. What is the way? Help me find the way. This guy had friends that brought him to Jesus. In in Mark chapter 2, we're given another story of friends that brought their friend who was paralyzed and on a cot to Jesus and lowered him down through the roof. Friends can bring friends to Jesus. Family members can bring family members to Jesus with our prayers, with our petitions. Maybe there's hmm, unforgiveness in your life that blinds your vision so you're not able to clearly see your way to Jesus. Maybe there's hurt. Maybe there's past abuse. It could be any, any number of things in your life that clouds your vision, keeps you from seeing clearly the Savior. And what about the speech element? Maybe, just maybe, you've already taken care of that first thing. Maybe Jesus is your Savior. You know that. But, for whatever reason, it's impossible for you to tell other people. You know, we have this awful word in churches, this long word that we use called evangelism. And when you say that word, people run. They head away from you. They don't head to you. They head away from you. They don't want to have anything to do with evangelism. Because evangelism is taking this Bible right here and slapping somebody upside the head with it. No, that's not evangelism. Yes, the gospel's involved in evangelism. You're sharing the gospel. The most powerful statement that you can make to evangelize someone else is to say, Frank, I was this way. And today, I'm this way. And Jesus made the difference in my life. If it weren't for Jesus, I don't know where I'd be. He made the difference. We sing that hymn, that song here, Amazing Grace. I was blind, but now I see. What made the difference? Jesus made the difference. When he came into my life, he changed my life. I no longer was blind. I can see clearly now. When's the last time you told somebody your story? Your, we, we, in, in old school, we used to call it your testimony. How about your life story? How about your spiritual story? How about your journey? You know, people love to hear that. They may know you now, and they didn't know you, you know, five years ago. And they just think you're the most wonderful person. And you can tell them, I was an absolute wretch. 
now I'm this way. And let me tell you what made the difference. How are they going to argue with that? They might argue you to death if you try to quote them scriptures. I mean, I'm not saying do away with the scriptures, do the scriptures later, but in the initial contact with them, let them see that it's Jesus, that it's the Holy Spirit that made that difference in your life. Don't believe the big lie. 